I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today I am thrilled to share with you one of the most exciting town hall events we have ever held at the National Constitution Center, and it is called Freedom Day. On April 13th, which is Thomas Jefferson's birthday, we held the first annual Freedom Day, which convened top thought leaders from across the spectrum to converge in Philadelphia at the National Constitution Center to discuss what conservatives, liberals, and libertarians agree about and disagree about the future of freedom. And we had extraordinary panels co-hosted by our great partners at the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society and the Aspen Institute discussing the future of free speech and religious liberty. The keystone of the event was the panel that you're about to hear, where we united the heads of the top think tanks in America, the Aspen Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, the Center for American Progress, and the ACLU for a wide-ranging conversation about the future of freedom. I don't want to spoil it except to say that it really was one of the most exhilarating constitutional conversations I've had the honor of participating in. It is interesting to see what all sides agreed about and disagreed about and inspiring at the end to see that despite the substantial and serious constitutional disagreements, all sides were able to converge around our shared devotion to the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Please enjoy the think tank panel from the first annual Freedom Day. It is such a pleasure to welcome you back. Uh, this is, as the previous panel mentioned, Thomas Jefferson's birthday, and I'm going to make the obvious introduction. Welcome to the greatest assembly of defenders of freedom ever since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. We have Peter Gettler of Cato, Arthur Brooks of AEI, Walter Isaacson of Aspen, Neera Tandon of the Center for American Progress, and Anthony Romero from the ACLU. A big round of applause. The National Constitution Center is indeed a convening space for the greatest thinkers on freedom and our constitutional liberties, but it is impossible to imagine a more distinguished, engaged, and exciting group than the one you have today. I'm gonna to plunge right in, and we have here on the side of the stage a very beautiful document. There are many exciting documents of freedom here at the National Constitution Center. I hope you were able to see as you came in our new gallery displaying one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights, as well as rare copies of the Declaration of Independence and the first public printing of the Constitution. This is a very special document related to Thomas Jefferson. It is a broadside of his first inaugural address. So a broadside means it was displayed right after he spoke in 1801. It was displayed in Boston. It's printed on silk, and you can see the, the nail marks that it was nailed up to some wall, and students would, uh, uh, citizens would gather around to see what President Jefferson had just said. Here is what he said in his famous second inaugural. I think I can read it better from my notes than from this beautiful script. But every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans, we're all Federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union, pause for the changing of the page. But it creates some suspense about what's gonna happen next. Who would wish to dissolve this union in its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. Walter Isaacson, you are the great biographer of Benjamin Franklin, and you know the founding era so well. Was Jefferson, in fact, describing an era of good feeling when there was less polarization and partisan fighting than there is now, or were things just as bad then as they are now? They were just as bad, alas. You have to remember that uh, John Adams had just put Benjamin Franklin's grandson in jail under the Alien and Sedition Acts. We had suddenly become partisan because despite what the good Mr. Jefferson said, there was a difference between the Federalists 
and uh, the Republicans or whatever. Uh, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. What's the key to what Jefferson said, I think, is that uh, we may have differences of opinion, we don't have differences of principle. And that is something that I think was true back then. Uh, you know, because the founding of the nation was so new and so cool that people felt there should be a reward for coming together and finding common ground, as opposed to the incentives for being divisive, which happened in the media, everything else today. I was walking in, I couldn't help myself, catty corner from here is Dr. Franklin's grave, so I put a penny on the grave like you're supposed to. But when he was across the street at Independence Hall when they were doing the Constitution, and they were pulling themselves apart that way. He finally got up, because there was a big difference on the big state, little state issue, which is a foundational difference in a way. And he said, you know, when we were young tradesmen here in Philadelphia, and we were putting together a table or a piece of wood, and the joint didn't quite fit together, you'd shave from one side and you'd take a little from the other, and you had a joint that would hold together for centuries. And he said, so too we here must each part with some of our demands. And his point in that speech was that compromisers may not make great heroes, but they do make great democracies. And that is the difference between that period and now. Let's explore on this panel why it was that that spirit of compromise, so central to the Madisonian vision, and so well captured on the last panel, which talked about civility and empathy, has been lost. But here's what we're going to do in our hour together. We don't all have to agree. I want to tease out agreements and disagreements in the mission statements of each of your organization. And as we talk about liberty, let's focus on constitutional liberty, because obviously we're all going to disagree a lot about policy. But here at the Constitution Center, we'd love to wave our pocket constitutions with this new edition, with its riveting introduction by yours truly and uh, David Rubenstein, just a brilliant exploration of the similarities between the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And I want to start with Peter Gettler, because I think it's fair to say that Cato is the most Jeffersonian of the organizations on this stage. And your mission statement says that you are uh, founded uh, because uh, of Cato's letters, a series of essays published in the 18th century that presented a vision of society free from excessive governmental power. These essays inspired the architects of the American Revolution. The simple, timeless principles of that revolution, individual liberty, limited government, and free markets are even more powerful today than ever. At Cato, what is most important in defending liberty? Is it the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights or the structural limitations on governmental power set out in the Constitution itself? It's both. We have a relatively unique perspective from many people in the world today in that uh, you mentioned that there are copies of the Bill of Rights here today, and we really like the Bill of Rights. In fact, we like all of it. And, uh, you know, uh, if in this audience, I suspect there are many people who would like to treat the Ninth Amendment as an inkblot, and there are many people who would like to treat the Tenth Amendment as an inkblot. And we believe the framework of unenumerated rights and enumerated powers is critical. And when you mention differences in, uh, in uh, that it was a very partisan time, uh, possibly as rancorous or more rancorous than today, but there was perhaps less agreement on principle. I think it's because there was uh, a more consistent view on the proper role of government and what was really being established by the Constitution. If you remember in the ratification debates, one of the, one of the great uh, points of contention was whether there should be a Bill of Rights or not. And uh, many people believe that there didn't have to be a Bill of Rights because the, uh, the powers of the federal government were strictly limited and enumerated. And that we ran the risk of uh, having a Bill of Rights in suggesting that these were the only rights that, that uh, were protected. Um, and at Cato, we have obviously a very strong um, uh, natural rights-based view of, of, uh, of liberty. And I think it is uh, you know, inherent in that tension that you mentioned in the Constitution, um, you know, unenumerated, unenumerated rights and strictly enumerated powers. Um, Anthony Romero, in trying to think of areas of agreement, Cato and the ACLU have agreed on important cases and have filed briefs in areas ranging from NSA surveillance to marriage equality. And yet there was something in Peter Gettler's statement that suggested that they care about all of the Bill of Rights, the economic stuff as well as the personal liberty. 
I don't know, uh, was he suggesting that you care more about personal liberty than economic uh, liberty? No, I mean, I think that, in fact, the Cato and the ACLU have had a long history of working very closely together on a number of issues. But the issues of economic inequality are very much at the core of also our, our agenda currently. And, and for us, our mission statement, is you have to take that parchment and make it come alive. These are not self-executing truths. Uh, they don't mean the parchment they're on unless someone takes them seriously and implements them. And over our 95-year history, we've done that. Everything from the Scopes trial, our f very first uh, major case, to our defense of Japanese-American internees in 1941, before the Supreme Court in 1944, case we lost, to the questions around Miranda, the right to remain silent, Gideon, the right to appoint an attorney, Loving, the right for interracial couples to marry, uh, Griswold, the right to contraception, uh, the Windsor case that struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. We took those principles and we made them real. And the idea that you need an organization like ours and others at, on this panel to take the fullness of our aspirations and to apply them into everyday lives in ways that we can't fully apprehend at the moment what it will mean 30 years from now. And I think we stand on the cusp of a major rights revolution, uh, one in which even with all the challenges we confront and all the partisan bickering, ours is a country that has moved forward in the granting of rights. This year will be the year the Supreme Court grants full marriage equality to LGBT couples. Now, it's a prediction that I feel very confident doing even on C-SPAN because I don't think there's any way for us to lose Jeffrey. And we have to remember, I hope I'm not wrong, uh, <laughs> that's taken us decades to get here. Uh, our very first same-sex marriage case that we filed was 1971. And now we stand in 2015 on the cusp of giving full marriage equality to every same-sex couple to marry everywhere in America because ours is a nation that believes in equality under the law. I think that's a remarkable testament to the work of my organization and the work of many on this panel. So the economic issue is hugely important. We, we recently brought a lawsuit, which would be interesting if we could find Cato to join us, where we have the very first lawsuit that goes from homeowner to investment bank. Uh, we have a, a Detroit homeowners who were targeted for subprime lending products by, uh, by Morgan Stanley. It alleges uh, racial discrimination and economic practices. It's been certified as a class. It, it, it looks at the economic recession and says there were clearly racial dynamics behind the Great Recession and this great market meltdown inf affected uh, poor people and low-income people of color, especially uh, with, with the impact on, on the country. And so it's, I, I think it's a place where we completely coincide. Where we decide to spend our energy and the focus and the nuance might be a place of difference, but I think they have a complete agreement on the principles. But just to be on, to, to uh, surface it fully, there are areas of Cato's agenda that you would disagree with, ranging from challenging the constitutionality of the health care mandate to striking down some forms of takings uh, laws and questioning aspects of the regulatory state on constitutional grounds. You're not uh, kumbaya on, in all respects. I, th I think there's room for evolution on, on, on all ends. Um, and, I, and I think as soon as we have Cato join us on my Detroit um, subprime lending debacle case, and I'm more than glad to look at some of the takings issues that affect upper, upper class white folks in America. I think it's, um, we're focused where we think the needs are greatest. And no offense, but I think there's, there's room for many of us in the sandbox. Freda said that one of her objectives today was to find common ground, but there are clearly limits to uh, comedy, even, even on a panel like this. Well, uh, Arthur Brooks, you've just written this important new book, The Road to Freedom. Um, you say that free enterprise advocates haven't been willing to make moral arguments, and that's a mistake, um, and you think that moral arguments should be at the core of the uh, AEI's mission statement, which is devoted to expanding liberty, increasing individual opportunity, and strengthening free enterprise. Tell us more about why you think moral arguments have been neglected, and also tell us to what degree are constitutional arguments part of your mission, and to what degree are you making constitutional claims? Thank you, Jeff, and what an honor to be here, especially with you know, this panel, where we care all care so much about 
about all of these arguments about freedom, how they can be made manifest, how it can be made manifest in each of our lives. At AEI, we've been around since 1938 with a pretty simple mission to, as you mentioned, to expand liberty, increase individual opportunity, and, and fight for free enterprise. That's actually not an economic mission. It's to give more people a better life. But we have to back that up. We can back it up with policy. But if you look, I mean, here we are at the National Constitution Center. If you look at the language that's enshrined in the Declaration of Independence in the second paragraph that all of us as Americans learned by memory when we were kids, it's not commercial language. It's moral language. It's that we're endowed by our creator with unalienable rights among them, as we all know, life, liberty, and not property, the pursuit of happiness. This is a, a really new idea in the history of the world. It's a new age idea in the history of the world, as a matter of fact. And if you, if you read this in the way that it was intended, and by the way, Thomas Jefferson was asked a couple of years later, why did you use that language? I mean, he was cribbing liberally from the Virginia Declaration of Rights written by George Mason. He dropped the word property. Why? He said it was, he said it was dictation of the American mind. But it really was dictation of the American heart. That's what was really important at the time because the whole concept was this notion of building your life. You know, this was a whole country that was, you know, including today the daughters of the American Revolution and, you know, the, 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 the descendants of the Mayflower. They were nothing but riffraff with one direction to go and that was up. That's a profoundly moral thing to be in a country that promises that each person can build their life. And that's the mission of my organization. Now, in, in a commercial republic, the instantiation of that requires a system. So what system does that that we talk about an awful lot? Well, it's the system that, that brought me into the movement for economic freedom. Uh, it's the system that has, has taken two billion people out of poverty since I was a kid. That system is one of globalization and property rights and rule of law and free trade and most importantly, the American style free enterprise system. There's been no other anti-poverty achievement that's ever come close in the history of the world. What I'm saying here is that what looks like an economic phenomenon is nothing more than the instantiation of a moral principle in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence and that we can live today and share with people all around the world, which is a profound moral thing. And if we don't see it as a moral thing, we're missing the boat. There's no doubt, as you say, that the framers were inspired by this moral philosophy of national rights that inspired their constitutionalism. We have this incredible new interactive that you can see in the Bill of Rights Gallery and now C-SPAN people online where you can click on any provision of the U.S. Bill of Rights, see its historic antecedents in the Virginia Declaration and the other revolutionary state constitutions that Arthur Brooke noticed, and then trace the spread of that liberty across the globe and compare the way the U.S. and countries around the world protect liberty. Nira, I want to ask you, when, when Arthur talks about natural rights and a moral foundation, it's very based on uh, the Declaration of Independence, on individual liberty. There's not a lot of equality talk in there. And of course, the, despite the Declaration's famous promise that all men are created equal, it took the Civil War, the bloodiest in American history, to actually codify in the 14th Amendment guarantee of equality for all Americans. The Center for American Progress's philosophy, uh, mission statement uh, talks about uh, as progressives, we believe America should be a land of boundless opportunity. People should climb the ladder of economic mobility. We have to protect the planet, promote peace, and shared global prosperity, harness the strength of our diversity. Are you more focused on equality, and does that language of liberty resonate less with you? Uh, no, I mean, I think that the... I think all of us share a profound commitment to liberty and freedom. And um, I mean, the, the conflicts of our times are ones in which we are constantly debating the meaning of liberty and the meaning of opportunity and the meaning of broad equality. I mean, obviously today we are focused with many folks on this, on this panel on the opportunity of, of, of real freedom around same-sex marriage, an issue that no one was talking about 100 years ago. I think some of the conflicts around liberty and economic liberty um, and its conflict with ideas of opportunity and mobility where they exist really um, go back not 200 years, but 100 years ago. And some of the debates we had a hundred years ago where we had courts who were considering 
economic liberty as a paramount value in striking down protections based, uh, protections that the state offered to, to protect individuals themselves from a marketplace that was running amok against their, one could perceive running amok against their own interests. So I don't think of these economic, uh, economic liberty issues as economic liberty as opposed to, um, you know, the state itself. Oftentimes these issues of economic liberty are ones where it's one individual's economic liberty against another. And I think the case Anthony Romero mentioned earlier around, uh, around the subprime mor mortgage interests, that is the dignity interests, the rights of African-Americans not to be redlined against market interests to market products. Right, so those are where these are these are issues where economic interests are in conflict, and I think that we should have a robust discussion of what that means. And we, I may disagree with someone else. I may disagree with others on this panel about uh, which value makes sense in that moment. But I don't have it. I would argue my view of liberty is as strong as theirs. Great. Well. I think Peter or Arthur, a response to Nira, she invoked the progressive era, and she suggested that was a time when conservative courts were striking down laws passed by progressive legislation in the name of economic liberty. Many of those decisions were denounced by liberal and conservative justices from Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis to Antonin Scalia. But now, Peter, there are distinguished Cato scholars like Randy Barnett and others who argue that the court was right to strike down those laws and we need a new judicial engagement in order to protect economic liberty against threats to it. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You, you, uh, it, we've gone through an era when uh, particularly conservatives were decrying you know, judicial activism, but we think that there is a, you know, clearly a role for, it's, it's about, it's about uh, preserving the, con the Constitution, about uh, the, you know, the framework that, that we discussed earlier. Um, and uh, you know, the, court, court, the court needs to be you know, an important line of defense um, when the legislature you know, oversteps its bounds. Um, you know, with, uh, in response to uh, some of the things Nira said, you know, our, our uh, concern is that when uh, you know, coercion is used in the, uh, in the economic arena, um, you know, that when the, the government, uh, um, um, you, you know, coerces economic agents in order to um, um, generate, generate a uh, specific outcome is, is uh, um, obviously something that is, is uh, at odds with, uh, with liber our, our idea of liberty. Great. Arthur, AEI is uh, a wide tent, and there are some traditional conservative defenders of judicial restraint and, and others who believe in this more engaged Cato-like vision. What is your sense of how the conservative movement is negotiating how vigorously the court should intervene to protect economic liberty today? Well, uh, I think that to understand the differences of opinion here, and something that's important that Nira brought up, is that the, the, the concept of liberty from 200 years ago and from 100 years ago differ in a very real way. And what we're, what we're faced with today is, is two kind of competing understandings of what liberty really means, or freedom really means. There's freedom, there's the, the notion of an absence of coercion, which is, the, which is the classic understanding of freedom, which is what our founders were talking about. And then later, as, as there was a lot of progress in, in American philosophy, there was this notion that entered of freedom, not freedom from coercion, but freedom to certain rights. And so what we're trying to adjudicate today is this balance of freedom from and freedom to, and we don't have the balance yet. I don't think there's anybody up here who's an absolutist. There's nobody here who says we need to go back to what people were thinking about in, in 1760. Um, but I think that a lot of us believe that the balance isn't quite right yet. The interesting thing in this adjudication process is, is figuring out if we need to go further in, in the realm of entitlements and, and personal rights, more freedom to as opposed to less. And that's the dimension on which I think the real disagreement agree, occurs at AEI, by the way, and also certainly on this panel, which is kind of like AEI. Uh, or, or like the National Constitution Center. <laughs> 
Walter, you're a historian of the founding era and also the leader of this phenomenal educational institution, the Aspen Institute, which so well brings together people of different perspectives to debate policy. To what degree does this natural rights vision, the founders' vision, still speak to contemporary people wrestling with questions involving liberty, technology, and society today? Oh, phenomenally well. It's always surprising how well, when you go back, especially to the Constitution and read things, you see how it applies. But I, I do think Arthur used the word uh, balance, which I think Greg used on the panel before. And we have to realize that there's a balance between conflicting moral principles at times. The most obvious being between equality and individual liberty, or sort of a notion of community and the common good and the general welfare, or economic pure freedom. And one of the things the Aspen Institute was founded upon was this principle of a compass in which you find sort of the balances of values you need. Community versus individualism, equality versus economic growth, whatever it may be. And what you try to do is understand that even though you're on a certain tilt one way or the other on any of these things, to understand what the other side is about, and in theory, to try to find some common ground where that moral principle can hold. I mean, Arthur talked about the need to put it in moral terms. I mean, there's a reason we are here, and it is partly because uh, we want to lead a moral life and understand how to create a moral society. One of your precursors, if I may call him that, uh, was Michael Novak, who wrote books like, I think, the one you're about to write and the one you just published, uh, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, which really gets at this balance well, this notion that capitalism exists, but not just in and of itself as a natural right, but it is there to benefit the common good as well as to benefit the individual. So when you look at that balance, you say, okay, what can we do right now? Let's take Nira's concepts of, uh, uh, you know, um, more economic equality. And, and you could say, well, one, where we can find, one place we can find the common ground is on this notion of opportunity. That is a founding faith of everybody from Ben Franklin, who runs away from Boston with just three coins in his pocket and ends up on the Market Street wharf, to anybody else, is that if you work hard and whatever, everybody should at least start with some semblance of a good opportunity. We have lost that in society, even in the time I've been around, certainly since Ben Franklin. Meaning, you know, when I went to school, there were pretty much a whole bunch of schools in New Orleans. We all, my dad, you know, went to the same schools. Uh, this was after desegregation. But now we've created a more separate society in most of America, where depending on your zip code or your family circumstances, this is the new Bob Putnam book, which astonished me in some of his things. And Bob Putnam, I don't think, is a liberal, per se, but somebody said, gee, we've lost that notion of making sure everybody has an equal opportunity. So in terms of the Aspen Institute, that would be saying, okay, we've balanced a whole lot of values, but we can get 70 to 80% of people to agree on these particular moral principles uh, and we'll leave the 30% that's harder to agree, we'll leave that aside. And I think sometimes when you were talking last panel about weaponizing disputes, I am not sure that our society faces a major crisis of pizza parlor owners having to cater gay weddings. If we all just calm down, you could sort of say, you know, we can balance this. I won't get that pizza parlor to do it if it... But somehow or another, we try to make these things into disputes instead of finding the common ground. Well, one thing that elevates the disputes is legalizing them. And Anthony Romero, I'm curious about your reaction to this moral talk. And also, um, the ACLU, under your leadership, has uh, struggled uh, impressively with clashes between liberty and equality. Uh, and I'll just take one specific one, hate speech, which we'll be talking more about on a later panel. Traditional civil libertarians would have put free expression over dignity and equality when it came to speech. Uh, there are some uh, today who would uh, strike a different balance. How have you tried to reconcile those two values? You know, I, I think ultimately it's, where, it's when rights clash that, that we have the greatest challenge, we at the ACLU and we as a society, because there are legitimate places where 
where the, the rights of one group may be in conflict with another group. And so you need to find a way to balance them out. Ultimately, the courts have been historically the adjudicating body to decide those conflicting rights. And I think those are tough issues. Where it's not tough, and to be very provocative, is in the context of religious refusals. Uh, I find it, and I was watching in the green room the earlier conversation, this question around the pizza parlor owner having to serve a gay wedding. Uh, the only reason why you find this great resurgence of people demanding their religious freedom and saying that the religious freedom is under attack is because we've made advances on LGBT equality. It is no surprise, all of a sudden they woke up in the last three or four years and said, my religious freedom is under attack. That's not true. Their religious freedom is as strong, as vigorous as it ever was in our America. They woke up and saw the political context around them changing, that LGBT people are getting their rights. And so as a plan B, by some very, very cynical leaders, came up with a rights struggle as a way to carve holes in the progress for LGBT equality. And it's not the question of the individual pizza owner. In some places, if you say the pizza owners don't have to serve the gays in their wedding, the gays won't get pizza anywhere. In Odessa, Texas, in places where we brought some of this work on church-state separation, it's not that you won't be able to get the one baker who will give you a wedding cake for a lesbian wedding, but the other one will. They'll all ban you. All the bed and breakfast will decline to hold the reception. All the pizza owners will exert the religious liberty. And then the right of that same-sex couple to have a marriage with dignity conferred to, her, uh, conferred to them by law will be nil. And so I think we have to really unpack this very cynical use of a rights framework, which is really just a clothing for bigotry and for discrimination. And let's call it for what it is, because that's what it was, and the resurgence of this desire to exert the religious liberty of these disenfranchised, poor little groups that now find their inability to worship their God the way they wished is certainly no in greater peril uh, now than it was 10 years ago. It's just that the world has changed around them. Thanks for those strongly expressed views here at the... <laughs> Which we welcome here at the Constitution Center because we believe there are good arguments on all sides of uh, every constitutional question. Um, Peter, I don't know if this one is for you, but let me tee it up by saying that Senator Mike Lee was here at the Constitution Center on Thursday and he gave a spectacular talk about his new book about our lost Constitution and he very vigorously articulated the argument on the other side, which is essentially since the courts have not yet held that discrimination against gays and lesbians has the same constitutional status as discrimination against African Americans. Therefore, it's not yet appropriate to refuse to grant exemptions from anti-discrimination laws. I can keep going by stating his argument, but Peter, has, has, does Cato have a dog in this fight, and do you support these religious exemptions? Another, another easy one. This is all Freda's fault, because she brought us up here and <laughs> said we would agree. So, but we have about 15 more minutes, so I'm sure it'll be fine in the end. <laughs> I, I think this is, you know, you, you asked the question earlier, Jeff, about distinctions between Cato's point of view and the ACLU's, and you know, we've stood shoulder to shoulder with them on the issue of, uh, of, of gay marriage. Um, you know, we do have a difference of opinion on... Um, uh, on, the, on the other side, because we do think that there is a legitimate economic liberty argument to be made and a religious liberty argument to be made of people being able to, uh, to refuse participation in, in, uh, in gay weddings. I mean, the, the, the uh, issue of the uh, photographer is, you know, to me, when you're actually participating in the, in the, uh, in the ceremony in a significant way, the... Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to make the argument that no one will be able to be served and, you know, the gay, gay weddings will be, you know, will be changed. But we always place a great faith in, in the market and the incentive of, you know, economic players to, uh, to serve their, their best interest. And uh, we think that there, as Walter said, um, there are, you know, many people very sympathetic to, we've had a sea change in the country with respect to 
um, you know, the, the uh, public opinion on gay marriage. And uh, I'm just a little incredulous that um, people are not going to find pizza makers to, uh, to, cater their, to cater their weddings. Great. Nero, do you want to weigh in on this easy and completely cuddly, uh, uncontroversial subject? So I, I, I would just like to just point to the fact that um, I, think, I think right here is where we have liberty and trust on both sides, at least proclaimed. Now, I would note um, that the liberty interests of pizza owners, hotel owners, et cetera, were all ones articulated in the 1960s during the civil rights struggle. And the issue that we're dealing with is, do you think that LGBT folks should be uh, a protected class, not subject to discrimination? So that's really what's at, at stake here. There's two, you know, you can articulate liberty interests on both sides. And as, you know, as, as a progressive, I believe the liberty interests of that person who's discriminated against is an important and paramount liberty interest. Because the feeling of being discriminated against because of who you are is very different from any other experience. And part of the beauty of the Constitution is it recognized minority interests in a democracy need to be respected because the democracy itself, the majority, will not always respect that. And the beauty of this Constitution, it, is, 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 it has expanded its vision of who a citizen is from the days of our first founding where African Americans were three-fifths of a person to today, where if the, one of the most diverse countries, the most thriving countries, because we have had values of tolerance and acceptance of inclusivity as core American values that started in the Constitution. One more uh, beat on that, Peter? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, w one of the cornerstones of our philosophy and, and one of the reasons I find it so compelling, libertarian philosophy, is that you know, we've been talking on this panel and a previous panel about issues that create a lot of rancor and uh, um, strife in our society. And it is always the case that this occurs when the state is involved in places where perhaps it shouldn't be. Um, you know, if the state were not already involved in marriage, licensing marriage, defining marriage, you know, we would not have had, um, you know, the, the uh, very difficult discussion that we've had over the last few decades about, about uh, gay marriage. I don't want to go too far afield here, but if we didn't have a government monopoly in schools, we wouldn't have demonstrations about what's in our textbook. And one of the reasons that I find libertarian philosophy uh, very attractive is that so much of the, uh, the things that we argue about would really disappear, and when we, when you have lots of calls for civility in our, in our discourse and in our politics, and the incivility is really injected when government power is used to do things that uh, create, uh, create disagreement. Arthur, do you agree that all of our rancor would go away if a libertarian philosophy were gratefully adopted? <laughs> I didn't say I didn't say all. In I fairness, said much. In fairness, he didn't say all. <laughs> many, many, most. I, 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 I'd be willing to experiment a little bit with that, um, but I, I would like to say a quick word about civility because this is something that we talk a lot about internally at AEI, and I know a lot of our institutions in Washington. Um, it's just a word of caution. I think it's really dangerous when we talk about what's written on the hearts of people with whom we disagree. Now, I write for a newspaper, it's a well-known newspaper in New York City, not known for its conservative views. Um, once a month, I write a column in the New York Times, and I don't read my comments afterward. And the reason I don't is because I don't feel edified by people who are talking about my motives, because it's really ad hominem. And I think there's a danger, I mean, I take in, in with, with uh, you know, a lot of respect what you said, Anthony, about what what conservatives are really up to, but I, I dare say, let me give you an example. So I'm politically right of center, personally. Not a lot, but 
you know, farther than, than others here and, and perhaps more than many of you. The reason I'm in the conservative movement is because I care about poverty. That's it. I don't care about billionaires. I don't care about their tax rates. I don't care. That's not why I'm in the movement. I know it sounds insane to a lot of progressives to be in the conservative movement because you want to lift people out of poverty, but that's my view. And, and when I hear that because I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute, I secretly want to give tax breaks to billionaires, I take great umbrage at that. And I think it's a dangerous line of argumentation. We're in a period of divisive leadership in this country. We need a period of optimism and unity around core American values. And the only way that we can do that is with a fight against ad hominem, even though I want to do it too. I want to talk to about people who disagree with me, and I'm going to say, you know what? They don't love their country as much as I do. I don't know that. But Peter, let me, let me interrupt. When someone refuses... No, go ahead, Anthony. <laughs> when, when, when someone refuses to serve a gay man at a restaurant because he's holding hands with his partner, that in our society should be unacceptable, right? I, I've lived it. I, I know what it's, it's like. I, I've actually checked into hotel rooms with my long-term partner in foreign countries, and when I show up and it's Mr. Romero with a double bed, and they find out it's two guys at the front desk, and they say, no, you can't stay here. Now, I dare say that the affront to one's dignity cannot be minimized. And yes, I went to a hotel room down the street, in the Polanco district of Mexico City, but it almost ruined the vacation. And our country that believes in the equality for all of us, under the, of the equality under law, should not sanction the ability. When the pizza man puts up the sign, pizza, subjects himself to the screening of the health department, puts up an exit sign like that to comply with local codes and laws, well, he's we, could get, we could get rid of the health department, too. He's... So I would love to... I just want to advertise which pizza department does not go... does not want the health department, because that just doesn't mother. I'm not sure we want that either. But, but they, have, they have agreed to enter this kind of government-controlled space. And, and that... The government should not allow that person, then, to determine who to serve and who not to serve. And, and uh, you know, it might be for all sorts of different reasons, but I dare say that the reason why you find this resurgence uh, of the use of religious liberty is because we have made progress on the LGBT front. And when someone refuses to serve me at a restaurant or at a hotel based purely on the fact that I'm a gay man, I will call it homophobia. I won't call it religious liberty. It is homophobia that should not be sanctioned in our nation that believes in the rights of all people. And this question of whether it is homophobia or legitimate desire to preserve tradition, of course, will be at the heart of the Supreme Court's decision in June. Chief Justice Roberts, in his dissenting opinion in the Windsor case, said he would not be quick to tar with the phrase bigotry those Americans who voted for a referenda banning uh, uh, gay marriage. Justice Kennedy disagrees. The fact that we can have this discussion in constitutional rather than personal terms is what allows this discussion to be so civil. And rather than continuing this completely riveting debate, I would just refer everyone to the phenomenal debates on these topics we are having. Uh, we just, in Washington, two weeks ago, launched the first of our national town hall debates about the Hobby Lobby case with the Federalist Society and the Constitution Society. And on June 2nd, here at the Constitution Center, we will have a debate on the constitutional issues about marriage equality with Evan Wolfson, uh, who is considered the Thurgood Marshall of the marriage equality movement, debating, among others, John Eastman from Chapman. It's going to be an incredible debate. We have nine minutes left to fulfill Freda's charge, which is that we have some notion of what the right and the left and libertarians can agree about when it comes to liberty. I'm just going to throw out one uh, possibility and see if anyone will say nay. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is much uh, embraced by the right and the left. I can do it by heart, uh, although you can all get your brilliant copies of the National Constitution Center uh, Constitution, which, by the way, thanks to 
uh, Mike Bezos, who we're going to hear from next, is now available on Amazon, and you can, you can buy it there. But the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Uh, the Supreme Court recently, in a 9-0 to zero decision, held that the police cannot, when they arrest me, God forbid, uh, take my cell phone and read my email, because a cell phone is not like a cigarette packet, and then the year before that, it held that the police may not put a GPS or global positioning system on device on the bottom of our car and trace our movements 24-7 for a month. Any dissenters on the panel from the view that extremely intrusive, ubiquitous surveillance that resembles the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution uh, violates the Fourth Amendment. Arthur, you're the some social some social law and order conservatives might well, question I mean, it, but I'm not going to stand up for in, in, what do you call it? extremely intrusive? <laughs> it's like like let's hear it for extreme extreme intrusion. That's right. That's right. We've got eight minutes it's left. It's, it's not a good one. It's the Iranians, I think, and 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 not our GPS systems. But. You know, though there there's an interesting issue there, which is privacy, which you can find penumbras as you. No, in the Constitution. But when people debate privacy, and I'm not coming at this from a big ideological way, I often feel we haven't gotten to the moral question of why do we want privacy? I mean, I know why I want it, and I know why we do, but I don't think we start with the foundation of individual autonomy, you know, the whole moral question of what we're building on, and at times, when does privacy which we call privacy, become anonymity. And the reason you don't read your comments online or the reason I get an email from uh, Mandy Grunewald today saying she's stuck in Uganda and lost her passport, will I send your money, is because anonymity allows people to do hack into Sony, whatever it may be. And so I am not making an argument here. I'm saying we haven't had the full discussion of the moral implications of anonymity and the moral um, rationale for what we call privacy. If, if I could, Walter, th th you and I have had great discussions about this, but when we become uh, more abstract about the moral issues, then the agreement goes away. So Arthur can say, yes, ubiquitous surveillance is an unreasonable search. But if I say, do you support a broad right of autonomy that allows individuals to decide the, their own conception of the meaning, the universe, and the mystery of human life, to use Justice Kennedy's phrase in upholding Roe v. Wade, I would imagine that many of your members would get off the boat. For sure, for sure, absolutely. And, and, and I think a lot of you in the audience and people watching on TV would object to that as well because it's so, talk about expansive. Talk about an expansive intrusion into the understanding that people have of natural law and, and the, the morality that governs their lives. And to say that, that effectively, you don't just govern your own life as you should in a, a system of, of rights and and, and responsibilities within rational public policy, but you can invent your own universe. Now, here's where we're trying to find the balance. You know, Nira and I were having lunch the other day, and it was really interesting. It, it captured my imagination, because here's the thing that we really agreed on a lot, which is the importance of dignity. The importance of individual dignity. Building your life is a question of dignity. Privacy is a question of dignity. Anthony should not be subjected to what he's put through when he's checking into a a, a motel or, or, or going to a restaurant because of his dignity, fundamentally. That's what we're talking about, and that's, that's what the framers were talking about. The framers weren't saying, this is an inefficient way to do things, to discriminate. They said, it strips dignity from each individual to do that, and so fundamentally it's immoral, and so we need a constitution and a bill of rights that's gonna set out the ways that legally we can avoid that, but you know what? If we're not decent people, all the paper in the world is going to amount to nothing. Look, the two books that were written by the hero of my colleagues at AEI, Adam Smith, were not, it wasn't just the wealth of nations. It was the theory of moral sentiments that came first 17 years earlier in 1759. He thought it was a more important book. Why? Because he talked about the fact that you don't even deserve a republic based on, on these rights and freedoms if you're not a decent enough person to conduct yourself with basic morality. And the same is true for each one of us today. Look, we can have all the, the, the legal discussions that we want, and we should, by the way, about whether or not you're served, which I believe you should be. But look, if we actually have to 
think that it's a question of law as, a question of, as opposed to a question of basic decency, that's what comes first in my view. And that's your point, I think. Yeah, that was the point I tried to make and you did more eloquently, which is try to figure out why it is. I mean, because this is an enlightenment concept. I mean, we're sitting here, so to speak, between 1776 and 1789 or whatever when they start, or whenever they do the Bill of Rights, they start a little bit later. And this is new in the enlightenment, this notion of individual autonomy and dignity. And that is, uh, we have to figure out where that more, and I think you said, Peter, you know, that the Bill of Rights is not like Beethoven's symphony where you could like the first and the fifth but right. hate the second and the ninth or something. You have to take it all as a package, and I think that package is sort of an enlightenment notion but too. I, I, look, I, I completely agree that we would, it would be a better world if people were inherently decent. I just... I just ask us to look through the last couple of hundred years of history of the United States and recognize that it was also people fighting for changes in law that created a world that better respected their dignity. We're in the 50th anniversary of Selma. People had to protest to make the law recognize that they were true citizens of this country. And that was a legal change. And it needed to happen because people were not doing it on their own. And the law interacted with society to create a changed world in which African Americans today are treated differently than they were. So I wish we all were born that way, <laughs> but it takes change in law that people struggle towards. And that is a great thing in America. That is a great part of this country, that we have institutions that can be changed by public protest, public action, to make it a more perfect union. With that, with that beautiful sentiment, it's time, ladies and gentlemen, for closing statements. Uh, Freda's given us some homework, and that is that each of your institutions uh, we hope we'll be inspired next year to mobilize Americans across the country to debate, celebrate, and learn about freedom. So if I could ask each of you as crisply as possible to identify a freedom or set of freedoms that you think are important to promote and tell us what you and your organizations will do to inspire Americans to promote it. Peter. Well, Freda, thanks so much. When we sat together at the Waldorf 18 months ago and you said, I have an idea for a new holiday, your sheer force of will and energy have brought us to this day. And I woke up in a hotel with very slow internet, and it took a while for my newspapers to load into my iPad. And for a second, I did think, I guess the Wall Street Journal doesn't publish on Freedom Day. <laughs> and you talked a lot about finding common ground. And I, you know, the Cato Institute is nonpartisan. And we're nonpartisan for a reason, because once we sit across the table from one another, you're a member of one party, I'm a member of another. Your ability to persuade, your ability to engage in honest, open debate is you know, mortally wounded. And I think we really do need to focus on trying to, trying to get ourselves up above the political process and thinking about, oh, these are our guys, we love our guys, the people on the, on the other side, those, those men and women, um, you know, they don't have, uh, as, as Arthur said, you can't, you can't, uh, you shouldn't be impugning someone's intent and in integrity. Um, and I think we have to find way, you know, areas where, um, you know, we can, we can rise above that. And I think that there is an unbelievable uh, kind of bipartisan assault going on in the rule of law right now. And the rule of law is ultimately what sets us apart from, uh, you know, it's, it's what gives, uh, lets liberty work its magic when we are the, uh, uh, ruled by by law and not by you know not by men, and I think that this is something if we are honest with ourselves and try to uh, uh, take ourselves away from the political discussion, it's something that we should be uh, should be very concerned about. And it's not a sexy topic, and it's not around one specific issue. So maybe it's something that, in a big picture way, um, you know, we can agree as a problem and agree as something that we uh, we need to address, and that. The end doesn't justify the means just because it's in service of a, a policy outcome that we, that we happen to support. Thank you so much. Arthur. I'd like to ask, 
that each one of us ask ourselves, what am I doing today to set someone else free? The conversation about freedom, typically in the United States, particularly as we go into another dreaded presidential election cycle, um, it's, it's at your throats again, I'm sorry to tell you, um, if you're not reading the news, is all about uh, what we are doing to protect our own freedoms, and that's right and good, and that's really important. But I, I think we have to ask, and I think it's a good opportunity to do so, what am I doing as a warrior for the freedoms of others? And, I, and I'm not telling you what your balance on freedom is, or what your explanation for freedoms is, or what your definition of freedoms is. But what are you doing? And, and so I'd simply propose this. I would propose a little examination of each of our consciences. And I'm gonna do this tonight as I go to sleep. I'm not gonna ask myself, what mean thing did somebody say about me in the New York Times? I know it's something. <laughs> I'm gonna ask myself, how did I set somebody free? And did all of my work go for the benefit of people with less power than me? And if my answer is no, then I've done something wrong. But if my answer is yes, I'm coming back tomorrow to my office, and I'm going to strap on my sword and my shield, and I'm going to fight some more. Beautiful. Well, Walter. well, I will build on that, I hope, although it's hard to top that, by going back to your original question, which is what principle, you know, do you think is most important underlying things, and what are we going to try to do about it? And I think that the principle that's most important to the foundational creed of the United States is the principle of opportunity. That is the land of opportunity that no matter where you're born or what state you are, whether, you, you know, when a Ben Franklin comes over, it's to avoid the class system and the hereditary aristocracy so that everybody has an opportunity. That's why we have individual freedom. That's also why we work as communities, to make sure that we build the right schools or do the right things. So any kid, no matter who their parents are, whatever their zip code is, will have an opportunity to succeed. And I think that underlies almost all of what's, you know, from the second sentence of the Declaration, which is created equal pursuit of happiness, uh, to the um, you know, Bill of Rights, the underlying principle is that America is a land of opportunity. This really does unite people who strongly believe in you know, economic freedom and people who believe in pursuit of the common good. Now, how do you do that? First of all, you try not to polarize that issue. We can easily polarize it. We can turn it into weaponized rights issues and stuff. Or we can say, you know what? We're all in this together. After Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and I was back there a few days later, you know, you, you got the sense, okay, we're actually all in the same boat now, so let's figure out what we're going to do. So at the Aspen Institute, to specifically answer your question, we were thinking about this over the past six months. What are we going to do? And so next month, we're creating a whole new division of the Aspen Institute on youth opportunity. Because every person in this room has had a lot of opportunities, including to be in this room, meaning enriching experiences. And when you were in high school, when you were in college, whatever, you had great chances in the summer to do cool things and great after-school programs. And that used to be the thread of American history, that we made things like that open to more and more people. Something wacky, not wacky, something horrible has happened in the past 30 or 40 years is the divergence of the enrichment opportunities uh, has widened rather than narrowed. And this is the first time in our history that has happened. So I think instead of pontificating about it or, you know, getting on a high, we're going to try to make sure that every city has programs that the Aspen Institute tends to do. We're going to try to, I, I see Mike Bezos here. He started us on this route with the Aspen Challenge, which went to urban high schools across this nation, said, do a really cool project, and then we'll find some funding for you to do it. We'll bring you to Aspen or Washington to show it off. But you from Seed Academy or from, you know, McDonough 43 or whatever schools in Los Angeles, Denver, Washington, you're doing in Chicago, you're going to have that same opportunity that I had when I got out of school at 3 o'clock at Newman and we started doing projects. So based on what Mike has done and many other people, I think we could each ask ourselves, after we ask ourselves the question that author asked is, what do we do 
not only to climb the ladder, but to give somebody else a hand up on that ladder? Well, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, I think to answer uh, your questions about what we'll be doing, um, I, first, I would just like to acknowledge there's been a lot of rancor on this panel, but uh, Cato and Cap have worked together for the last 10 years on issues of same-sex marriage. Um, so that, and I know that was that might have been easier for us than for Cato at, at moments, but they were very early, uh, early, early supporter and uh, focused on that. Um, so there are many areas in which we've we've reached across the aisle. Another area, and this this is brought up by your Fourth Amendment question. If you look at the last several decades, um, mass the mass incarceration movement is part and parcel of the decisions by the Supreme Court and, and the rest of the judiciary um, to really come in uh, on the side of the state versus the individual in Fourth Amendment and other cases. Um, but CAP, the ACLU, uh, and conservative groups like Americans for Tax Reform and Freedom Works, uh, funded by a broad coalition of, of folks from um, the Koch Brothers Foundation to, uh, to MacArthur, Ford, and the Arnold Foundation are all working on a, a, a new coalition to actually address mass incarceration and a whole range of issues. And, and that coalition has is very much talking about uh, issues like asset forfeiture, but also issues like sentencing reform. And there, this is an area where I think we all recognize there's a broad problem and uh, a broad coalition, including conservatives and progressives, can solve it together. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll have more Supreme Court cases uh, that are recognizing the, the individual rights and the importance of the Fourth Amendment over the next several decades, but we hope we'll also reform, uh, we'll have to see reform in the legislative side as well. And I would, I would just close by saying exactly that, is that for us, a place where we can work with individuals uh, with whom we may not share everything, but we share a common goal of making a difference is in the area of mass incarceration. We will disagree with our opponents on religious refusals. We will disagree with our opponents on abortion. We will disagree with our opponents on LGBT rights. But on places where we can coincide, it is incumbent upon us to coincide. And like Nira said, this is a remarkable moment, the window of opportunity, which has never been flung this open before. It is an economic issue. It is absolutely at the core of how government has used its taxing power and the government taxpayer money into building this great epidemic of over-incarceration. 2.3 million people behind bars, the highest incarceration rate of any nation in the world. What took us 50 years to build since the war on drugs from Nixon will take us decades to undo. We are thrilled to be working with Coke Industries. We are thrilled to be working with the American Legislative Executive Council. We are thrilled to work with right of center groups who come to this not just with the economic imperative, but with the moral imperative. At the end of the day, this is not just about balancing budgets and shrinking deficits. This is about do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. This is about turning the other cheek. This is about whether or not America is a country that believes in the value of redemption, and whether each one of us should be judged for the rest of our lives for the worst act we've done on our worst day of our life. And if we don't believe that rule should apply to us, then it ought not apply in our criminal justice context. And that's where I think the, the opportunities are enormous and I look forward to working with anyone else with whom I might disagree on other fronts. We'll just park those issues, Peter, Arthur, and others, and we'll work together where we can and, and, get, and get, some, get some things done. But thank you very much. This has been a superb constitutional conversation. My expectations were high, and you have surpassed them. I have heard, I would not say rancor, but uh, engaged uh, debate. Um, and I have also heard some important agreement on fundamental issues like the moral foundations of American liberty, the importance of opportunity, and the dangers of mass incorporation. 
Um, as for the National Constitution Center, what we will do, Freda, to keep up your charge is continue to be the central national hosting platform for precisely this kind of constitutional conversations on the web, here in Philadelphia and around the country. And what we will do is educate the citizens of the United States about the US Constitution, hearing the best arguments on both sides, like we've heard today, so that each of them can make up their own minds about how best to celebrate freedom. We are now going to celebrate our own freedom by taking a 15-minute break, and then we will return to hear the great Walter Isaacson interview Mike Bezos. Thank you so much for listening to that inspiring panel. The Constitution, as Justice Holmes said, is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view, and that extraordinary discussion confirmed his insight. The goal of Freedom Day is to inspire people across America to gather next year on Thomas Jefferson's birthday to celebrate the future of freedom, and we hope you will be part of that effort. In the meantime, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.